Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Elizabeth Rosner's latest book, just out in paperback, is Survivor Cafe, The Legacy of Trauma and the Labyrinth of Memory. Elizabeth Rosner is the author of four other books, Electric City, Gravity, Blue Nude, and The Speed of Light. I interviewed Elizabeth Rosner in the KPFA studios last September for a program that aired in late 2017. I had a chance to interview her again, this time in front of a live audience, at Pegasus Books in Berkeley on November 30th, 2017. Well, can I just say something about what you just said, even though you weren't recording when you were saying it? A lot of what you just ran down as a list of what we're up against right now can also be considered the result of a lot of unresolved trauma from the past, that a lot of people are experiencing trauma in a new way right now. I, I don't want to deny that. But I think a lot of a lot of the chaos, a lot of the reactivity, a lot of the um, rage, and a lot of the sorrow is the result of unresolved trauma from centuries ago in this country and elsewhere. And so I think in a way, it's not just looking at the recent past that's relevant, it's looking at the distant past and how all of that brings us to where we are now. And so what we have to do about now also includes what we should have done a long time ago. Before I get to my very first question, Something that I was thinking about just before I left my house, which is that most of human history is about trauma. And the only exception in some respects is the post-World War II Western civilization where we have not had the kind of wars that have gone on everywhere else if somebody lived, say, over 30 years that they would have experienced. And for me, I've never experienced war because I didn't go to Vietnam. Most people my age have through history. So trauma goes on and on and on, and pretty much on some level, everybody's got it. Yeah, well, I think we have a more complex understanding nowadays about what war trauma entails, and that it isn't just the impact on soldiers who are in battle. It isn't even just on soldiers who've returned from battle. We are now understanding more and more that they bring traumatic residue back with them from war. And actually, there are a lot of ancient cultures that understood this far better than we do. We are learning very belatedly what was understood by indigenous people long ago, that when you send someone, a man usually, out into battle, you can develop that warrior kind of persona or set of warrior behaviors. But then you have to bring that warrior back into so-called normal life and reintegrate that person by taking them out of a warrior mindset. And that's a process. And we rarely, if ever, have done that in this culture and in most Western cultures, I think. So 
then we suddenly are amazed when warriors come home with PTSD and then terrorize their families or their communities, and children are going to school from terrorized home environments, and we're caught completely by surprise when, in fact, we should have expected this, that war trauma isn't something you switch on and off. And, you know, I'm looking at Susan Griffin, who's written about this for decades. There are others who have written about this, you know, with a much deeper understanding than was really allowed to permeate the culture until, I think, quite recently. We didn't even have terms for trauma until quite recently. We didn't have language for it. Speaking of that, let's get to the basic. How do you define trauma, and what is the difference between trauma and grief? That's a complicated question, and I'm guessing there are probably therapists and other professionals in in the audience who might have much more specific and trained interpretations of this material than I do. My understanding of trauma, as I've done the research for this book, has to do with a disruption to the nervous system and to the psyche that creates a kind of disconnect. Well, first of all, I should back up and say that there's event-based trauma and there's repetitive trauma, there's historical trauma, there's cultural trauma, there are a variety of traumas. But the trauma that I'm particularly interested in is the kind that reverberates intergenerationally. And that, we are now learning, has to do with the fact that traumatic events are showing up as modifications in the expression of DNA. How many of you have heard the term epigenetics? Either because you encountered it in my book or somewhere else. So this new branch of science, let's say, epigenetics, is looking at the ways in which the gene itself isn't being modified by trauma, but a tag on the gene or a switch on the gene is being modified by a traumatic episode or a traumatic experience. And in some ways it might turn on or off a cortisol switch, cortisol being a stress hormone that the body naturally produces. And so people who have been traumatized and who experienced that fight, flight, or freeze reaction that we have that modification that occurred in their genetics is now showing up in subsequent generations to children and grandchildren of trauma survivors who themselves have never lived through trauma. They're showing up with the symptoms of PTSD in therapy offices, in classrooms, and we are finally starting to look at how this isn't imaginary, this isn't made up, these aren't just extra sensitive people, overly sensitive people. These are actually inherited traits and behaviors that need to be dealt with generationally. Let's get to basics. For you, as the daughter of Holocaust survivors, what specific traumatic events happened in terms of your brain that we're talking about. Well, and again, you know, none of this was named when I was growing up, right? I had a moody mother who turned out years later to be diagnosed as having bipolar disorder, but we just called her very moody. Remember those days when people who had mood disorders, we didn't have language for that then either. So there was this hypervigilance around my mother's patterns of behavior hypervigilance on my part and my siblings. There was hypervigilance around strangers, loud noises, 
unexpected knocks on the door. I've met people of my generation, post-Holocaust generation, second generation we sometimes call them, daughters and sons of Holocaust survivors, who always kept a suitcase packed because they never knew if they were going to have to just suddenly flee. And this wasn't just, oh, in case of an earthquake or a fire. This was in case of basically a pogrom or something like that. What was your feeling? I mean, did you have your suitcase packed? I did not have a suitcase <laughs> packed. But I did have, ironically, I had a sense of tremendous alienation from most of my peers. Even though my parents' closest friends were also Holocaust survivors, we were living in a very white Anglo-Saxon Protestant community in upstate New York. So... I felt like what was, quote, normal in my household, a lot of hysteria, a lot of drama, a lot of nervousness, a lot of agitation, wasn't what I encountered in my friends' families' homes. But I didn't keep a suitcase packed, and I didn't have that sense of immediate terror lurking. But some part of me was aware that if it happened before, it could happen again. And in my family, some of this came from the stories I was told. And so yeah. some people are questioning, well, maybe this PTSD in the offspring is because they've been told frightening stories or they've witnessed their parents experiencing nightmares or flashbacks. The science seems to be saying that even in silence, even when the stories are never told, even when the behaviors were never witnessed, that the PTSD patterning is still showing up. When you mentioned that list of items, I kept thinking a lot of African-American families are experiencing in, in America on a regular basis. So how does that tie in? Well, again, my expertise is limited to what I've studied and understood, not as a sociologist and not as a historian, but as a writer. And so in a way it's anecdotal. But for me, the comparison, the similarity is this long history of violence and hatred that isn't just a portion of a war experience, but has to do with centuries of anti-Semitism, centuries of racism. They go hand in hand. And what I was saying earlier about unresolved trauma from slavery in America, unresolved trauma from Jim Crow laws in America. Un you know, Hitler was actually copying his race laws from America's race laws. This is a relatively new conversation we're having about World War II history, that there's evidence that Hitler's top designers of the so-called final solution were first looking at Jim Crow laws in America to see how you could turn, in this case, Aryans and Jews, turn Jews into subhuman caricatures so that you could more easily separate and then destroy and murder them. We were doing that in America. We, we dehumanized blacks for centuries and, and many people still dehumanize people of color in subtle ways and in overt ways. So all of that is, to me, traumatic residue, that when you grow up black in America, you are afraid a lot, I think, rightly so. Jews in Eastern Europe would grow up afraid 
because of the long history of pogroms. This was even before World War II, long before World War II. And of course now the anti-Semitism is rising over there as well. Anti-everything non-white is rising again and again and again. And it, you know, it's happening in the White House. Now we're moving for a second into areas that you usually discuss, which is the book itself. Your previous books, which were fiction and poetry, dealt to some degree with this, but this is the first nonfiction book. So what brought you to write it? And also, for people who don't know, what is a Survivor Cafe? In April 2015, I went to Germany with my father for the fourth time. And it was the third time that we were there to commemorate an anniversary that was organized by Germans to commemorate the anniversary of liberation from Buchenwald concentration camp. My father had been a prisoner in Buchenwald when he was 15 years old, 15 to 16. And when we went in April 2015, we also went with my nephew. So we were three generations. And it was the third generation Germans who were organizing this event. And I would use air quotes if I didn't hate using air quotes, but event. (laughs) And they had invited the remaining survivors of Buchenwald to return to Weimar, which is the historic beautiful town of Weimar, Germany, um, eight kilometers away from the concentration camp. They invited the remaining survivors to come and also the remaining liberators from Patton's Third Army. And we gathered there to attend a ceremony on the site of the camp, but they also created this afternoon of something they called Survivor Cafe where they set up these tables at the Weimar National Theater and asked the survivors to sit at these round tables in what they called an informal atmosphere. Was this a ballroom or something? It was the lobby of this gorgeous Bauhaus, I don't know, it wasn't Bauhaus, it was older than that era, gorgeous National Theater, where Hitler used to give speeches. The people staying in Weimar were staying in Hitler's favorite hotel. And this was all by design. They were literally trying to reclaim these spaces deliberately. So these tables where these survivors were sitting were basically making themselves available to the public who wanted to come in and speak to them. And two of the survivors were wearing their prison camp uniforms. They had saved their uniforms for 70 years. And there was media everywhere. I mean, you think this is weird with the microphones. There were giant microphones and cameras and journalists everywhere. And and there were these two very old men sitting in their striped uniforms. And then there were these Germans, all ages, you know, kind of shuffling around, trying to decide if they had the courage to go up and speak to people. And my father was sitting at a table that was not a survivor cafe table. It was a separate table for some reason that I go into in the book. And this woman sat across from him and she said, "Um, I don't want to tell you about my grandfathers, but I do want to tell you. They were both in the SS. And she said to my father, were you in the camp? And he said to her, ich bin Jude, in his flawless German that comes back instantly when he sets foot on German soil. 
And they had this really poignant conversation in which she said, by the end of it, she said, in Germany, self-love is very difficult. And it just kind of broke my heart. And I had done work here in Berkeley, actually, in the Bay Area, on a project called Acts of Reconciliation that brought together Jewish descendants of survivors and German descendants of Nazis. So it wasn't the first time that I was hearing of the suffering of Germans. I mean, it's really complicated what they carry. Being descended from perpetrators is much more difficult, in a way, than being descended from victims and survivors. But all of that was such a profound experience that I came back with all of these images of, of this weird notion of the word survivor and cafe next to each other, and this surreal kind of Fellini-esque moment, which reminded me of another Fellini-esque moment of 1995 when I had been in Germany in Buchenwald with my father, and they had set up a tent on the grounds of the camp and served a banquet to the survivors, a banquet in a tent on the same ground where you know they had starved people to death and hung people and tortured people. And, and right in the middle of the banquet, my father's front tooth fell out. You know, we had all brought him plate after plate after plate of food. All the survivors were like, they were taking pineapples off the table and stuffing them into their pockets. <laughs> I mean, it was just like a circus. And so all of these images of all of these trips started gathering in my mind and my editor who I was visiting, I was just describing the trip and he said, you've got to write this book. And, and I realized I'd been writing this book my whole life and that it was no longer really necessary for me to give this story to characters or to invent scenes and setting and dialogue that I had it all, you know, I already knew it all. But it was in the course of writing about that that I began to move sideways into research into what was it like for the descendants of Hiroshima and Nagasaki survivors? What is it like for African Americans with these centuries of slavery and unresolved trauma? What is it like for Japanese Americans who were in internment camps but never spoke about it after the war was over? What is it like to be the descendant of someone who survived the Khmer Rouge when they think maybe one out of every three or four Cambodians was murdered by the Khmer Rouge. That's trauma on a scale we can't even begin to comprehend. And I finished the book before we started hearing about what's happening to the Rohingya in Myanmar. And, you know, this gets back to the original topic of, you know, the dailiness of the trauma that we're witnessing, experiencing, collecting in our own bodies. There comes a point where on some level, you have to start healing, otherwise you fall apart. So from your perspective, now you were in Germany three times, right? The tent was the first? Actually, I was there four times, but I only described three times okay. in the book. So the first time was in 1983. This wasn't an official visit. This was my father and I going together because I wanted to see the place where he had been. It was still divided Germany. There was nobody there. There was nobody really kind of um, monitoring the place. The, the East Germans were kind of hoping it would disappear. They were more interested in commemorating the victory of communism over fascism. So there was no mention of Jewish prisoners. It was a very eerie, very eerie trip. But it was at the end of that trip where just I and my father were there, at which point he passed a kidney stone. So his body was having 
massive reaction to what he was revisiting. He also was able to say to me, now I want to come back with the whole family. There was some recognition that in a weird way, the trauma gets healed by looking at it. And, and it's paradoxical, but I think you start with naming the trauma before you can, you know, sort of do whatever kind of bypass we hope to do to get around it and beyond it. You actually have to move through it. And this isn't news to any of you who have been in therapy. You do hard work to heal, and some of it's very painful at first. So that was the first trip. Then yeah. there was the 95 trip mm-hmm. where your whole family went and your right. mother hid out for the whole time. So my memory, and the book is also about memory and the permutations of memory. So in my memory, the five of us were there, my mother, my father, my two siblings, and myself. There was this ceremony on the camp with the tent, and then we were staying at this hotel, and I was watching my parents both speaking German, which was a language they never allowed us to learn or study. And then, years later, I'm looking back at the photographs that we took. Back in those days, we actually printed the photographs. And my mother's in none of the photographs from the day we were at the concentration camp. And that was when I realized she must have stayed back in the hotel and refused to join us. And you have no memory of that? I don't. But now that I see the photos, the photos remind me of that day and the way my mother was handling the trip, it was very difficult for her. And unlike my father who spoke a lot about his wartime experiences, my mother was very, very uncomfortable and that was again my introduction to how telling your stories can re-traumatize you. We were aware early on that, that when we asked my mother questions about what had happened to her during the war, she would become so visibly disturbed that we all learned not to ask. And I know that's true for a lot of people in your family. You just, you acquire this sixth sense right away of which subjects are okay to bring up and which aren't. And in my mother's case, we protected her from her own feelings, basically. She was in the Vilna ghetto. And when the ghetto was liquidated, right before the ghetto was liquidated, her family was able to arrange to go into hiding in the Polish countryside. So she was hiding alone at the age of 12. And I know very little about what that was like for her because she couldn't talk about it. Then there was the trip 2015. And what was the fourth trip? So the fourth trip I didn't write about in the book, but the fourth trip was in 2012 because I had been writing novels that were about descendants of Holocaust survivors, and then I wrote a novel about the Jewish-German dialogue. I was invited to Germany to speak to some university students who had been studying my work, and I invited my father to come with me on that trip. That was one of the first times that he was really beginning to address, because of course, when I would be up on stage talking, I would want my father to come up and answer the questions I was being asked as well. He still goes to high schools and universities to talk about being a Holocaust survivor and sharing his stories, but it was the first time that I heard him speaking to German audiences about that. And on the 2015 trip, we visited a German high school in Weimar, and these were 15, 16-year-old kids, and my father had been exactly their age when he was in the concentration camp down the road from them. What was the difference in your father between that trip 20 years ago and 20 years later? We were all different, right? 
Well, in 1983, I was 23 and he was 53. In 2015, I was 55, he was 85, and my nephew was 25. So all of those decades in between, you know, my nephew was now kind of acquiring the set of experiences that I had received from my father in 1983, and he was meeting what he, what he told me were called 3G Germans. So my nephew's generation is 3G, and he informed me that made me 2G. So everything starts to change in language, in apprehension. I mean, he and the German counterparts were going out for a drink together. I mean, this was, it was all very different in the sense of its remove, right, from the events. They were pushing the wheelchairs of their grandparents, right, and these, um, both the American soldiers who were there and the survivors were getting old and fading. And that was the other big motivation for writing this book now, was my feeling that, um, it's not just a feeling, it's a fact. The people who were the first-hand witnesses to some of the most horrific atrocities of the 20th century are dying. And no matter how many videos and films and books you might absorb yourself in, there's nothing like being in the room with somebody who has a tattoo on their skin or has a certain look in their eye that contains that story. So I urge you whenever possible to, if you're if you have the opportunity to hear directly from a Holocaust survivor or a Hiroshima survivor, I encourage you to do that. Once upon a time, the last living slave was here to tell the story. We lose something incredibly important when that firsthand testimony goes away, which is why my generation and the subsequent generations are not just looking at what we carry in traumatic residue, we're also looking at what do we carry in the stories themselves, in the details, in the human level of the experience. And in Japan, for example, they also have this multi-generational storytelling understanding, and they have a person or a role that is densosha, that is the designated transmitter of memory. And this is somebody who's not necessarily even related to a Hiroshima or Nagasaki survivor, but they are memorizing the witness's story so that they can tell it as though it happened to them. And that is an astonishing understanding of how it has to be an individual human experience. These stories can't recede into the abstractions of history. Well, when we talk about that, I keep thinking they're remembering. Gore Vidal called this place the United States of Amnesia. Is there something in the American psyche which is creating this disease of forgetfulness? That's a really good question. President Obama spoke about that with Marilyn Robinson in a series of interviews they did for the New York Review of Books that was really fascinating. And he said something similar, that we're really good at forgetting. And some of it, you know, you can say, well, America has this whole idea of, of being in forward motion all the time and that we're always looking toward the future. And, you know, there can be something really healthy and, and productive about that. So it's not a bad thing. I just don't think it has to be either or, right? I think that actually... The most effective ways to move forward include carrying the past with you and really wrestling with it in an ongoing way. I think, 
you know, that old saying about those who forget history are doomed to repeat it, we are witnesses to that all the time. So I think the whole way to remember is a challenge. I think it's an individual challenge and it's a collective challenge. And if you look, for example, at the way all of the debate about the the soldiers, the Confederate soldiers in the South and whether those monuments should be taken down, it's not to erase history to remove those statues. It's to place them in their proper context, right? So you create a museum of the Civil War, a museum of slavery, and you put those statues there and you discuss that what they represented was a belief that relied upon the utter dehumanization and degradation of an entire race of humans brought against their will from other parts of the world. I mean, you talk about what that really was. And so it's not to just choose between remembering and forgetting. Remembering is complicated. It turns out that our memories, much as we think that Every time we retell a story, we're solidifying the details of that story. It turns out every time we remember something, we rewrite it. We create a new version, and we replace the old version with the newer version. That can be treacherous and dangerous in, in terms of what we forget, but it means you have to do something very deliberate and careful in order to preserve your accuracy. And Museums have a certain commitment to accuracy that's complicated, too. Museums frame stories. They frame narratives. We have to acknowledge that. So I write about visiting the Holocaust Museum in Washington in January. I went to the Women's March. How many people were at the Women's March in Washington or somewhere? So yeah, here. You were all here, right? So I got to go to Washington, and, and while I was there, I also went to the Holocaust Museum and to the new Museum of African American History and Culture, both of which I strongly urge you to go to. And if you can, go to them both. It's really fascinating to go to them both together, I mean back to back. And it was the first time I realized that the Holocaust Museum in Washington is the American story of the Holocaust. Like, I, you know, I didn't really get that until this time. Because my understanding of the Holocaust is my family story of the Holocaust. So even as a kid, when we would study it in school, and people would be like, what year did Hitler invade Poland, fill in the blank? I'd be like, well, that was when my mother was nine, and they came to the house, and they kicked them out of the house. You know, so for me, it's my family story. So I go to the Holocaust Museum and I see, oh, this is when the Americans arrived at the concentration camps. That's where the story begins for Americans. And then they backtrack to try to understand how this nightmare could have occurred. That's not how I learned about it. Well, I mean, you know, we learned that World War II began on December 7th, 1941. Exactly. Well, you know, September 1st, 1939. And Kristallnacht was 1938. And Hitler coming to power in 1933. You can start there. Or you can start with him being sent to prison where he wrote Mein Kampf. Or you can start with him, you know, flunking out of art school. I mean, all of these, you know, stories have stories underneath them. But yeah, you know, so getting back to this question of American amnesia, you know, sometimes it's very convenient for us to forget, right? We don't want to remember genocides that happened on this soil. It's easier for us to point at other genocides in other countries and denounce their lack of humanity or their war crimes. You know, we committed genocide against the Native Americans. 
you know, from from basically early on our arrival. Yeah. Well, there was that that image of Trump with the uh, Navajos in front of a portrait yep. of Andrew Jackson. So our amnesia isn't simple either. It's full of denial and it's full of finger pointing. You know, Austria always likes to point next door to Germany and say, we didn't do it, Germany did it. But Hitler was Austrian, right? I mean, they, they had their own, and the Poles and the Ukrainians, and I mean, it goes on and on. So we are just like everybody else, it turns out, we Americans. We're complicated. We're heroic and we're, we're terrible. When you mentioned going to the Holocaust Museum or people touring the uh, concentration camps and the death camps, that's called dark tourism. I was wondering, is that voyeurism? Is it healing? What are we talking about? There's a website about dark tourism that I spent a lot of time on. Death tourism, dark tourism, it has a few different names. And it sounds a little twisted, I have to say, when you just think about the, the name of it or the activity without really understanding people's motivations. But I think it varies. It depends on who you are and what you're looking for. I mean, there are people who go to this place in Cambodia called S21 that was a former high school that was turned into a torture center. And I don't have the numbers in my head, but they're in my book. Something like... I want to say 21,000 people passed through there and 140 of them survived. I was at a place in Siem Reap. Was this place in Siem Reap? I don't know if it's in Siem Reap or not. It might be. Yeah, because I think that was the place that I went to. There was nobody there except me and the tuk-tuk driver who began telling me about how his grandfather was one of the first ones killed mm -hmm. because he knew Lan Nol. There's a stupa there that is filled to the brim with skulls. So why were you there? I was in Siem Reap for just the day and a little bit before and after, and I had spent the morning at Angkor Wat, and then I went to the Cambodian Museum. I just felt like I had an obligation. That's the best way I can put it. So that is the motive for a lot of people who are visiting concentration camp sites and killing field sites and so on, is because people feel the need to stand in these places and acknowledge the, the depths of human behavior, what we are capable of. The first time I went, I went to Germany with my father in 1983, and we went to Weimar. We got this brochure that said, you know, visit the home of Goethe and Schiller and Liszt, and also go look at the monument to the inmates of Buchenwald concentration camp and celebrate the victory of communism over fascism. So they were steering you away from the site of the camp itself. But there was this weird sort of combination of, like, go to Angkor Wat and go to see the stupa of skulls. This side-by-side -side approach to travel, I think, is in some ways people saying, I don't want to only see what's beautiful. I want to see what's true. But at the same time, I did ask my guide in Angkor Wat, what about your parents? Mm -hmm. They were farmers, mm -hmm. and they suffered, yeah. and he was born after. Yeah. In fact, everybody I saw in Cambodia was born after. All of Siem Reap is young. Well, in Rwanda, it's a similar thing. You know, Rwanda, I talk about some in the book. The Rwandan genocide, 800,000 people killed in a period of four months. Almost all of them killed with machetes, and almost all of them killed by people they knew. 
you know, these were neighbors killing one another, Hutus killing Tutsis. And now the Rwandan government is trying to rebuild these villages and communities of Hutus and Tutsis living side by side again. They're trying to encourage the Hutus and the Tutsis to work together to plant gardens together. I mean, it's astounding that they are trying to reconcile the past with the present when the people whose families were murdered are having to deal with the people who murdered their families. I mean, it's one thing to talk about me having a reconciliation with a German whose father might have tried to kill my father, but it's another thing for my father to reconcile with a Nazi. Do you see what I'm saying? So Rwanda is doing something quite extraordinary. And again, I think the death tourism notion of saying, you know, we have to look at the darkest chapters. And then we have to see how do we live with that in our midst and not push it away and not say it didn't happen and not say we can never recover from it, but we have to begin by acknowledging that it really did happen. I felt like the need to honor the people who died on some level. And, you know, when the woman who sat opposite my father at that table asked him if he had been in the camp and he, and he answered her in German, he said, um, warum sind Sie hier? He asked her why she was there. And she said, I came here out of respect for you. So there was something that you know she wanted to say to him, but she was also there as a way of honoring him. The relationship of healing trauma and political action, is there a relationship? I mean, my form of activism is in the writing of this book or other books that I've written and, um, and in speaking about them and hopefully inspiring people to ask difficult questions and, and to treat memory and history and trauma as the complex subjects that they are. Activism, I think, right now feels no longer like a luxury. It feels like something we all have to do on a daily basis in whatever form you're comfortable doing. Some of that in, is just being as educated as you possibly can be you know, when you say, you know, the only way to calm your blood pressure down is to pretend to yourself that the world is okay. Like, we also need to practice self-care, and I don't mean that in a woo-woo way. I mean that in a really profound and meaningful way, that we have to calm ourselves down so that we can stay present with what's really happening and then go back into the world and deal with it. So sometimes we do have to turn off the barrage I feel like there's a kind of violence being perpetrated in the media sometimes. And I hate saying Not the sometimes. media like it's one <laughs> yeah. mass thing. I mean, but we need to keep working with our sources of empathy and not having our empathy shut down. I mean, I talk about compassion fatigue in the book and and the studies that have been done showing that when people turn off their empathy, they actually don't feel better, they feel worse. It's not better to not empathize. It just means you have to titrate, you have to monitor. One of the women who was responsible for putting together the memorial for 9-11 at Ground Zero in Manhattan had a number of volunteers and students who were interviewing the people who survived the attack on the towers and also people who were listening to the recorded messages from people who were sending cell phone messages as they knew they were dying. And she discovered that her interviewers were getting, she called it, sick with listening. That there's a way that we can actually start to traumatize ourselves by doing too much 
to help others and that you have to figure out what the lines are. It's painful to shut down, but you can't always stay open. But if you shut down, then look what happens. I mean, my blood pressure, I can feel it rising right now. Let's talk about ginkgo trees. I write about those in the book, too. The resilience of ginkgo trees, the oldest living fossil, and they survived Hiroshima within a kilometer of Hiroshima. Thousand-year-old trees survived. So I'm not joking when I say we also have to find what inside of us helps us to persevere. And some of that is the power you feel when you're shouting about the truth and you're denouncing somebody who's lying, who's deliberately lying. But sometimes it's also just holding the truth sacred and knowing that you, that you aren't allowing that to be violated inside of you. I'm going to ask a question that's been on my mind, this Me Too moment that we've all been experiencing. The relation of the traumas that are suddenly being spoken about in terms of the traumatic feeling that we're having with Trump in power, is there a connection? Absolutely. Absolutely there's a connection. I mean, I know so many people who have abuse histories who were completely re-traumatized when he was elected. The moment he was elected, it was like all the abusers in the world got a free pass. And I know a lot of people who felt that in their bodies and in their psyches and in their memories. And that was not at the beginning. I mean, it was already happening during the election cycle. People were being re-traumatized by the revelations about how abusive he was and how monstrous and predatory. But the fact that he not only got away with all of that behavior as a public figure, as a so-called famous person, but that he got elected to the highest office in the land. I mean, that re-traumatized so many people, men and women, who have had abusive perpetrator parents or adults in their lives or just men in power, bosses even. So it has just gotten worse from there. I think there's a complete connection between that. And maybe what we're witnessing right now, it has to trickle back up, right? I mean, all of the ways that that the culture is now saying this is unacceptable in the workplaces, this is unacceptable in your communities, this is unacceptable in schools, this is unacceptable. You know, when someone said, how can we elect someone, I'm talking about Roy Moore now, how can we consider having someone in the Senate who was banned from a mall or from the YMCA? I mean, how, how can this even be happening, that perpetration is unacceptable in so many parts of our lives, and yet we're electing these officials that they're held to a lower standard than the rest of us? I used to say, if we wouldn't let the, I hate to say his name, so the guy in the White House, if, if we wouldn't let him drive a school bus of children because he's unfit, why would we let him run the country? I mean, so it's like, to me, the mind boggles every day, every hour, but I absolutely think there's a connection between the recognition of daily microaggression, macroaggression, perpetration, violence against women, violence against people of color, all of that being named in a more and more cumulative way. I think if you can call it a blessing about this, this administration, it's, it's a horrible outcome. I kept thinking that on some level, 
Matt Lauer, who deserves everything he's getting, is also paying for Trump because he would not exist in that, that way. He would not have been brought down if Trump wasn't there. I don't know. I mean, I think that's an interesting hypothetical. I know what a lot of people are saying, that if the media had been challenging him during the lead-up to the election and defending Hillary in the lead-up to the election, if that moment when he stood behind her at their debate, that moment when he stood there lurking behind her, like every predator we've ever seen behind a woman, creeping up on a woman from behind. That should have been painted across the front page of every newspaper saying, this man is a monster. And Hillary herself has said she wished she had turned around and said, back off. And who knows what might have happened. I mean, some people have said if she did that, that would have changed everything. Everybody can say if she had done something different, it would have changed everything. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm not a big fan of blaming Hillary. But that was a really intense moment for a lot of people who were watching that happen in real time because we all saw it. I mean, you could see, and when they imitated it on Saturday Night Live, it was, it was so chillingly accurate. When Alec Baldwin played that moment, he, he played it so perfectly, and it was just so creepy. He was a monstrous guy, a crazy guy, monstrous, crazy, I don't know. Well, I want to bring it back to Survivor Cafe. Yeah, your book, remember that? <laughs> because, you know, what connects it all is this notion that we are going through traumatic periods, that each of us right now is having to deal with not the trauma of living in a concentration camp or being the child of one or for most of the white people here. We got white privilege, you know, but for an African-American sitting in this room, they're dealing with trauma on a regular basis. Now we are, and this brings it back to what the hell do we do? Yeah, I wish I had answers. I mean, I, I do believe that, that we have to all take collective responsibility for what's happening. And again, I think that depends on your individual definition of what it means to take responsibility. So I don't have a prescription for everybody. But I also think about, you know, when I was in high school and I asked my father, how did he get through the year he spent in the concentration camp? How did he, how did he make it through? because he didn't know it was going to be a year. He didn't know how long it would last. He said it was so awful. Every day was so horrible that I had to believe the next day would be better. And my father's far more of an optimist than I am. The day before the election, he assured me he wasn't going to win. He promised me. <laughs> I was afraid. But, but that really core definition of knowing how bad things are and believing that the next day could be better. I think that maybe is going to sustain me and maybe through this, even though it's been a year of very difficult days one after another. But I do think that, you know, what Rebecca Solnit writes about, Hope in the Dark, you know, all of these ways that we find voices and intellects and passion. Van Jones is saying some really powerful things about what politicians and what Democrats need to do to, to get their act together. I, Robert Reich we have here in Berkeley who's, you know, doing amazing things to help restore 
sanity or at least offer sane advice. So I think we look for the beacons and we follow them. And, and sometimes we have to be the beacons, I guess. I, you know, I do feel like even though my book is a very dark series of chapters reflecting on the past and its impacts on the present, I'm hopeful still that looking at the darkness and naming it and addressing it as something that can lead us toward something different is a hopeful practice. So in a weird way, I am my father's daughter. I do believe that tomorrow has to be better than today. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.